0: Welcome everyone to Season 2, Episode 6 of The Behavioural Investor. Today we have Alastair from Adelaide. What's the time, Alistair? Uh, 10 past 6 in the evening. It's 10.40 here in Doha. Ben, where are you? What's the time?
1: I'm in lovely Brisbane. It's 20 to 6 in the afternoon.
0: Okay. So we're living up to our reputation of behavioural investing around the world. Today, what we're doing is taking the podcast in a bit of a different direction, but it's still to do with behavior. A couple of episodes ago, we interviewed Matt from Breaking the Market. Basically, we reached the peak there in one form of behavioral investing, which is a technique to minimize as much as possible the potential negative impact that behavior can have on your returns by using a very sensible three asset approach in gold bonds and stocks who manage volatility minimize it as much as possible and never work as an active investor so picking individual stocks where we got to in that episode is that using an equal weighted ETF or the S&P 500, you can get something like a, a return of around 8.6, 8.7%, which is incredibly good over the long term. In our infamous compounding sheet that we keep mentioning, that Ben uh, put together and, and talked about in episode one, you'll get over three generations somewhere in the region of three billion dollars. So, you know, nothing to complain about. But what we'd like to investigate. Uh, in this episode and, and future ones is a different way to, to look at behavioral investing, which is to confront head on the challenge really of managing your biases and other factors that can cause bad behavior with a view to fostering good behavior so that we can be successful, active investors. That's why we've got Alastair on. I'm really building you up here, Alastair. <laughs> Sorry for the pressure. <laughs> A confession we managed to extract from Alistair before recording is that he's achieved somewhere north of 20% as a geometric return since inception through managing his behaviour well. So Alistair, would you like to tell us a bit about yourself, what your academic
2: and professional background is? As you mentioned, I live in Adelaide, been working since 2008. As an electrician and water treatment operator, I've become interested in investing and began studying Bachelor of Business Commerce a couple of years ago now, actually. Doing that part-time online, as well as working full-time and then analysing businesses as well. Purchased my first share under my own name in 2009, pretty much almost without intending to timed the bottom of the market, which was pretty lucky. So I've really only uh, been investing in a pretty long bull market, which has given me a boost in confidence in my abilities.
1: Just a question on that. What was the share, if you don't
2: mind sharing? Sure. So the first share I bought was Leighton Holdings, but Simic Group now it's known as.
1: How have they gone over the last 12 years?
2: I've two portfolios. Portfolio one is from when I first started investing. And then over that time, I've started to educate myself and things. And then that's when I created Portfolio 2. when that portfolio influenced my investment philosophy and things. Whereas the first portfolio was just me buying shares with dad helping me out, things like that over time. So there's no real reason as to why I've bought them. And in the meantime, though, in the last few years, I've pretty much sold down all of my original purchases, except for Cochlear and CSL, which have proven to be pretty good performers. I have worked out on one of my spreadsheets, the performance of each of my purchases in comparison to my benchmark, which is the ASX 200. If you don't benchmark and hold yourself accountable, you could be spending all this time and money on investing in, whereas you should probably just be focusing on something else. You can benchmark against the market do you
0: also have any intellectual or investing heroes that might have inspired you to get into this, but you also compare yourself against?
2: I don't really compare myself against anyone else. I learn from people, obviously Warren Buffett, favorite of yours, Will. Um, and, I yeah. knew he
0: was your hero,
2: but was <laughs> I Thank you. If you compare yourself to the performance of other people, you can become competitive and then influence your decision.
1: Who are some of those other than Buffett and, and some of those big names that people know of? Are there any names that you could mention that you've learned from?
2: Before I got introduced to Buffett, I think Roger Montgomery's book, Valuable. All the material which I read is all along the same lines of quality businesses at fair values, really. Read his book, which was a good introduction. Peter Lynch was a good one. He's an American, pretty well known. A couple of local investing heroes that spring to my
0: mind are Matt Joss, although he's a New Zealander, but you know we'll claim him, and Sage Simeon
2: on Twitter, uh, Andrew Page. Yep, that is strong man. What do you think of him? I've read Joss's all his articles and things, and they're very insightful. He's done extremely well for himself. Anyone really, if it doesn't matter who they are, you can learn from them or gather some sort of information which you can implement into your own strategy, as long as you understand yeah. it and it resonates with you and your beliefs. I don't think it really matters who doesn't even have to be from investing. It can be from external.
0: We have that approach too, with some of the people that we've interviewed. And I like your emphasis less on hero worship than on simply extracting lessons from them. So yeah, that's great to hear. One thing that you did in preparing for this interview was you sent us owner manual or user manual for your fund. I'm interested if you could tell us a little bit about that as a kind of elevator pitch.
2: It's called a fund, but it's my own family's portfolio. I treat it as though it is a fund because that's my eventual goal is to run my own fund. So at the moment, each quarter, I provide an update to whoever wants to receive it of how the fund has performed. What's the purpose of writing that yeah. manual? What are the three main points from it? So the owner's manual is taken straight out of Warren Buffett's book. So it's uh, what he's provided to his Shareholders is is what it is. It's an owner's manual. It's what it sounds like. What myself, as a potential fund manager, if you were to invest with me, is what I'd be looking for and what you can expect from me. So, type of investments, what we'd be looking at. So, returns on capital, profit margins with little, no debt, and also long term growth prospects within the industry. Say, for example, like my biggest holding is Nick Scarley, which sells furniture. I mean, the styles and things might change, but we'll always need furniture, the way we might receive it or manufacture it or buy it online or whatever, obviously, is going to change. But the raw fact that we're going to have to continue to need furniture into the future isn't going to change. So that's something I like to take into consideration. It explains what type of person I'd look for who would potentially invest is someone with a long-term mindset who understands that the best time to be investing your money is at the bottom of a crash. So when everyone else is fearful, that's when you should be putting your money in. You've described the behavior of an investor there. Yeah, it is like that, describing the behavior The attitude that I want, because you don't want people if it's because especially if it's a fund structure where it's open ended, people can take their money in and out. So you run the risk of if the market's tanking that people get scared and pull their money out and then you're forced to sell, you know, at a below intrinsic values. And if you keep doing that on a consistent basis, you're bound to lose money. I also emphasize in there that people should only be investing excess money. They should have an emergency fund because you don't want to be forced to sell your investment just to cover these expenses because chances are more than likely that the time when you're going to need that money is when the economy is down. So the market will be down and it's probably the worst time to be selling. And I also mentioned I've got a large proportion of our family's wealth invested in portfolio. So that provides a massive incentive for me to make sure that the fund does well because I've got as I say skin in the game and also I follow Tony Hanson who's a zero fee fund manager so he only charges a performance fee so unless the fund outperforms the benchmark the fund manager doesn't get paid so that's something which I would most definitely implement
0: it was a long elevator
2: ride but you know I'm sold <laughs> it's not an elevator pitch because no one can buy in so <laughs>
1: Well, Alistair, tell us about your approach to investing. What processes do you go through? And can you also describe how that benefits you from a behavioural perspective?
2: So I've got a spreadsheet that I go through, which is just keeps getting bigger and bigger every time I analyse companies. You go through by first collecting collating the data from the financial statements and also the notes and putting them into the spreadsheet. And then it creates a a restated financial statement to help keep things consistent as accounting rules have changed and things like that. The big time consumer is working through my checklist. So I think there's about 106 checklist items that I go through, all covering different areas. So for example, I've got um, a checklist on, on the business itself, understanding how, making sure that I understand how the business works. I think I'm sort of going a bit off track here or not going to that question, am I?
1: <laughs> no, I think it is a quite good detail. You know, for example, with the checklist, you've got 160 items, as you say. From um, a practical perspective, how do you go through each of those items? Is it, it must be quite tough if you've got 160, give them any depth of thought and consideration, or is it something that it does force you to, you've got the mental strength and the behavioral strength to actually go through them and and consider them in proper detail.
2: So with a checklist with each item, there's a spot for comments and then a spot for a rating and then a spot to flag an issue. So I read the question or the checklist item and then I've got to write a sentence or it can be a paragraph or two paragraphs depending on the question and how much relevance that it is in answering that checklist item. And then from there, I can give it a rating out of five So five being good and one or zero being terrible. And then if it's poor rating, I can flag that checklist item as a potential risk that could occur. So by going through and actually writing down an answer to each of my checklist items makes me think and go through the question itself and make sure that I fully understand what I'm asking myself.
1: When you go through that checklist, do they act as hurdles in the sense of if a company fails one of the checks? You don't go ahead any further in the checklist or do you just Um,
2: completely? Yeah, I don't really have like, there's no one individual thing where if it fails that, then I cancel it out. Like when I do my filters, a broad market filter, I keep them pretty broad because I know that businesses, they're not consistent performers. They go up and down with the local economy and global economy and things. So you're going to have times where the return on capital is going to be low because for whatever reason, and that particular time might be a good time to buy a good quality business. So I don't place too much emphasis on each individual item, but as a general rule, I'd like on a consistent basis, returns of of capital, maybe above 10 or 15% and low debt or some some sort of cash position or something like that as a general rule.
0: On that issue of 160 checklist items, that has behavioral control written all over it because I reckon so many active investors who are treating the stock market like a casino and lobbying 10 grand on something they've spent two minutes understanding just the name of, and have heard something on, I don't know, channel seven, the 30 seconds they spend on finance in the news. That's one side of active investing. And then there's Alistair with 160 checklist items. This is the definition of doing everything you can
2: to have a considered approach. Yeah. Well, every time I I read a book. If it's worth my time, I'll study that book. So most of these checklist items are from books. A lot of them are on the financial side of things is from a book called Financial Shenanigans, which is just going through decades of businesses, which have basically just pulled financial shenanigans or tried to fool investors and just what to look for in the financial statements to try and avoid making poor investments. And then other things sort of like growth side and stuff, you've got Peter Lynch and reading some of his books and on what to look for. And then also sort of some market research, Credit Suisse had a measuring the moat article, which had some really good things to look for in a company on how to analyze its moat rating or its ability to capture a consumer's minds.
0: Okay, so it sounds like as the ultimate behavioral investor, you have a funnel of books as well that you're constantly analyzing and learning from and reading to derive more checklist items or to extend your framework basically. So you're, yep. is, you're using these books for more things to look for.
2: So it just keeps evolving over time. I hope to keep up with whatever's relevant and to be sure that I cover as many bases as I can. So, I mean, there might be some things which have doubled up in there because I've probably got to go through it. But yeah, over, overall, it looks at some um, key areas of, in, in the financials, in the management, competitor environment. And I also look at uh, the ethical characteristics of the business as well to make sure that it meets my sort of ethical criteria.
0: Okay, so the, the price you have to pay then to earn your 25% geometric return and over three generations, by the way, the <laughs> the, <laughs> the outcome of that is, is just, I, I don't even know what that number is over three generations. Yeah. Like I can't I even, guess... it's got one, two, three, four commas. <clears throat> so we're, we're into the trillions. <laughs> All right, so, so to, to get this sort of an outcome, it's not, it's not a joke. You have, you, it sounds like you're constantly reading books from the best investors. You read those books seriously, constantly extending your list of what is now 160 checklist items. You are systematically going through every potential investment with those items that have been distilled from the best investors who have written these things down in these books. Sorry, Ben, you wanna say something?
1: Just with that point you made around 25% growth and the effect over three generations, can you invert it? So at what year do you get to a billion dollars? In this uh,
0: What year? So if, you, if you're chucking 35 grand in because you're an expat working in the Gulf in a tax-free country, <laughs> <laughs> you said a billion, Ben?
1: Yeah. What year do you do to get to a billion by investing thirty-five thousand each year and compounding? A that? billion, a billion, a
0: billion, a billion. Where? Are we? Uh, so after fifty or 60 years or something? After the I've got it here, the forty-sixth year, hmm. one billion four hundred, one billion four million four
1: hundred fifty thousand seven
2: hundred thirty-nine dollars. <laughs> <laughs> if you look at Buffett, for example, he's compounded his net worth at an average rate of about twenty five percent a year. I think, um, um, especially of initially. I think
0: it overall, it's actually more like eighteen percent because the the more money you accumulate, the harder it is to buy the smaller stocks that are going to move the needles.
2: Yeah. Well, this is this is this is starting from when he was. I think he had like a hundred grand when he was twenty or something, twenty one, um, which was quite a bit of money back then. Um, but yeah, so that's just that's his. Is it wealth over time, but it's, it's a, uh, it's not something <laughs> I think you needed a lot of probably good fortune as well to, to do that over, over a long period of time, I guess, but.
0: Okay. So, so overall, the point so far is that it's serious work. It's hard work. You have to be studious. You have to develop your own framework. It has to be supported by a spreadsheet. You're going to be constantly reading books and you're going to be exploiting those books by extending your, with, you're viewing them only as a means to extend your framework and refine it, to remove things from it, to add things to it. I'm trying to keep up with you here, Alistair.
2: And and as a bonus, I, I enjoy reading them. So <laughs> that, that always helps. I think that's a big thing as well. You've got to be passionate about it because it takes up a lot of time and energy to go through it. So if it's not something that you enjoy, perhaps you're better off looking at the passive investments or investing with a fund manager and then spending your time doing something which you enjoy because you'll probably get a lot more benefit out of doing that
0: okay well that takes us to the next next question so what are the limitations of your system that investors need to be conscious of if they want to use it for example around fees and taxes and other uh, limitations like you were starting to talk about
2: i'm not sure what you mean by fees and taxes i guess but how do you minimize them for
0: example because those
2: are two of the ways that most okay yeah well that's quite simple that really i guess is you just buy and hold. (laughs) And then that way you don't have to pay any taxes. I think uh, I've just read a tale of Charlie Munger. So it's just a book about his uh, quotes, giving a brief explanation about them. And uh, one of them, he sort of mentions how by buying and holding, that can add an additional 1% to 3%, this is his calculations, uh, on your annual returns, which is just purely from not having to pay that Annual gain um, capital gains tax on your investment. So if you just let it run over time, yeah, it's quite beneficial, and especially in Australia with our franking credits, we can utilise the the dividends a lot more. So that provides some sort of income if we need it, and doesn't force us to have to sell our shares. But
0: okay, so so you're talking that that's a way that that's a limitation that your approach doesn't have because you are a buyer and a holder. So yep. what are some actual limitations with your approach that if I was to to go to growthofvalue.com and faithfully follow your method and spreadsheet, what are some potential pitfalls?
2: My spreadsheet's probably like going inside my mind. So it's <laughs> for you to understand it, it probably won't make not, not too much sense to some people because like, I haven't really explained it very well. But I guess the limitations for the active investor is you've got to be just that. You've got to be active and stay on top of your game so and read financial reports i mean you don't need to be i mean when i say active i I don't mean like every day you know watching the market i mean once a year when the annual report comes out or every six months um and the half yearly report comes out you should pay attention to what the business is doing and be sure that it's staying true to the reason why you bought it that's another reason why it's good to go through a checklist and write down these things you know why you've bought bought the company or the, the business. So then if, um, if it changes fundamentally, that's probably the best and only reason to, to sell it. But yeah, limitations, just time consuming, I guess. So how long would it take to go through your
0: value investing analysis sheet for Nick Scully, for example, or Light
2: Centre? Well, for me, it takes a long time because I'm also working full-time and studying part-time and have a young family to contend with as well. So... But just if I was to able, able to do investing full-time, it'd, it'd probably be a full-time job. It'd be a few, a few weeks worth of constant study, analysis, and writing it up. Because I like to write up, a, and I actually share them as well, and an analysis of the business, which helps ensure that I understand my investment. It's quite a time-consuming thing.
0: To try and illustrate things as starkly as possible, you get into the trillions in three generations by spending weeks on your analysis, rather than only billions, by just being a passive investor and managing volatility between gold, stocks, and bonds.
2: Well, I guess once you've made your first trillion, you probably don't need to keep. Uh, <laughs> then you can <laughs> do passive investing. Yeah, yeah. Become a
0: property investor. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Buy land. <laughs> yeah, I mean that—that is—that is the—the that is the truth of it is not an easy feat you've got to you've got to spend put the time and effort in and enjoy it really i think the big thing is to enjoy it and be inquisitive
0: sure i've I got, I got one more on this topic uh before i hand over to you ben another potential pitfall then, uh alistair and this is something that ben and i have been sort of conscious of when we've been since the start trying to apply kenneth marshall's framework is that you could spend two weeks and then find out that it's not worth it yep Exactly. But yeah. How so minimise the occurrence of that wasted time.
2: Yeah, that's the big thing. Is um, you so you you try and hopefully can filter them out at an initial stage using a, a sort of a stock screener, so that gets rid of a lot of companies. And then I've got an ethical screen to get rid of, which also eradicates a lot of companies. And then I sort of have a pretty lenient debt and screen, you know, and then it gets rid of a lot of companies. But by the time you just and look for sort of profitability, you find that you've removed 80% of the market or the Australian stock market really it's, it's, it doesn't really take that much of a of a filtration process just to remove the majority of the market but yeah, once you put in that time, it is hard to let go and then
0: Yes, then, um, there's a bias there too Yeah, that you'll, yep. um, you have a confirmation bias
2: Yep and uh, also another problem with the active investor is you're going to be going against market trends. So you've got to be ready to like in March when everyone was thinking the world's going to end, you've got to see through that and think, okay, these businesses are hopefully going to come through out the other side. The world isn't going to end. That's the time you should be investing your money. So the Um, limitation
0: there is that you have to be courageous. The approach could cause anxiety and you as an investor may not have the wherewithal to deal with that anxiety. So you may yeah. have the best investing approach and framework and tool from you and your website, but you don't have the courage to actually expose your money to the market under those.
2: Yeah, So for example, when I first bought Flight Center in March, when when the market was tanking, I think I, I bought them about 19 or $20, but you know they went on to fall. <laughs> I think their, their low was about eight eight in the $8. So you, you've just lost half of my investment or, or more uh, in a matter of weeks. But because I had those weeks of analysis and study behind me, it's given me the conviction and the confidence of understanding the business, and seeing and believing that it can get through lockdowns over the next two, three years or however long it, it could end up being. And then having that conviction to be able to keep investing and buying buying more. So. Okay, yeah. so
0: maybe to distill things, your conscientious and serious approach where you spend two weeks getting acquainted with a business before you expose your money to it. The aim of that is so that you have the conviction during a fifty percent drawdown to get into it.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's I mean, the if, if, you're working to. Yeah, that's the thing as well. Like I share my analysis, but someone might read it and then buy, but they haven't done that that research themselves, so they don't have that conviction behind themselves unless they trust everything I say. <laughs> that's so. That's a big benefit from putting in that time. So it's also not be a benefit by a deterrent because you're want to you might want to buy a company because you spent all this time invested into it but but it's also yeah um, a major benefit from giving you that conviction
1: so one of the aspects with the spreadsheet that you've developed is that you do a discounted cash flow analysis and just for people that aren't familiar with that can you explain what it is and why you use it instead of multiples combined with thresholds
2: the reason why i use Uh, the discounted cash flow rather than multiples and things is purely because I don't really understand multiples. They don't really make sense to me in a business sense. If I'm going to buy a business, I'm going to look at its cash generation, how much money it makes, and then how much of that money can I, as the owner of the business, take out and pay myself with. So to me, that's what you should calculate the value of a business on. So a discounted cash flow is just, it's a, a big guess, really. You've got to calculate a, a growth rate and then a cash flow as well for the company. And then you, you grow that, that cash flow at, at your calculated growth rate. And then the sum of those cash flows is is basically how much money you can take out of the business. So it's called like commonly called free cash flow. But then you've also got to discount all those future cash flows to a present value because a, a dollar next year is, is not worth the same as a, a dollar today due to opportunity costs and inflation and Instead of buying this particular investment, I can put my money elsewhere and earn an interest on that. So you've got to discount all those future cash flows. And uh, to me, the discount rate is basically the percentage you want to receive from your investment. So theoretically, if you have a discount rate of 10% and it gives you a calculated intrinsic value of $10 and you buy the business at $10 and everything you've analysed for the business, the growth rate and everything plays out by the book exactly as, as you intended... Theoretically, your annual return should be that equal to that discount rate. So I guess that's a, a good good thing to sort of understand with a, with a discounted cash flow. It gives you sort of that. Uh, I,
0: I, honestly, I always get a bit thrown by the word discount. Can you explain what that means again?
2: It's it's just it's just bringing a future cash flow or a future dollar into a present value, discounting I'm a future. i lost cash already. Flow. So well, because if if I was to give you an option, so if you think of when your parents bought a house you know the the cost of that house would have been a lot lot less than than it is is today to that, that same house today and that's because yep. the value of that dollar is depreciating due to inflation and then also you've got to consider that this money you're using to buy the business you don't have to buy that business you could put it into bonds or into another company which earns a completely different return yep. so if you've got a safe if you've got a safe return of 5%, you would wanna make, and you're gonna be buying a, a risky business, you wanna make sure that you're gonna receive at least that 5% return. A discount rate is basically taking into account the, the purchasing power of a dollar and how it depreciates over time. So you don't wanna buy, if you, if, you don't, if you don't discount your investment, the, the cash flows, you're gonna be paying way too much for that investment. So over time, you're gonna be expecting so at the moment today i can for 100 dollars you know i can buy a lot of groceries and whatever i don't know what what, what you can buy for 100 dollars can you, you buy, buy lots of fuel buy lots of yeah so you can get a tank of fuel or something for two tanks of fuel for 100 bucks depending on your car if there's no inflation or no whatever if in 20 years time that that company i've bought pays me another 100 dollars uh, i can buy another 100 dollars worth of fuel which is to another two tanks of, of fuel but in the real world 20 years time for a hundred dollars, I might be only be able to buy a quarter of the tank of fuel. So, I don't want to pay for a hundred dollars that future hundred dollars. I don't want to pay today to receive that hundred a hundred dollars. I want to pay the equivalent amount to receive a twenty five dollars in today's terms, if that makes sense. So, I yeah. don't want to pay. I don't want to pay a full you know the full hundred dollars today. I only want to pay the twenty five dollars today. Well, the you know the right. So,
0: I, or another way is. It's not discounting well you're discounting if you're considering it in terms of the amount of money you're going to receive in the future. The other way is that you are boosting up the amount that you're uh, paying now to put it in terms of what money will be worth in the future that, that's another way to do it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah but and then but a simple way is to think of it is just it's it's your minimum required return of what you want. So if from this investment, you want to earn 20% a year, then you should discount all those future cash flows by 20%. And then all else being equal and, and your analysis turns out correct, then you'll receive a 20% return on your investment.
0: Okay, if it actually reaches that value.
2: If the company grows and, and increases the cash flow at what you've calculated and, and priced in, then theoretically that's what you should receive. But, so this is know, bringing up time.
0: It seems like time, the same with Ben's sheet, it involves a huge amount of time, three generations but a large factor in your decision-making Alistair seems to be that you are spreading the potential income of a business over a certain period of time and making. So all I'm saying is you need to have time as a factor in your Mm decision-making. Great.
1: Uh, Do you want to come up with a question, Will?
0: I don't know. I guess... I always get so confused with this discount cash. Like I, I actually, as you saw, I modified my own sheet to automatically do DCFs after reading your book, Alistair. So I get it, but it's just not intuitive to me. That's what I'm trying to get at.
1: The way I think about it is, is there's sort of two ways and it's pretty much what Alistair just explained. The one way is if someone offered sell you today, $10, how much would you pay for it? So today you'd pay up to ten
0: bucks
1: yeah up to so you might pay nine dollars you pay up to ten dollars but if someone was to offer to sell you ten dollars in ten years from now how much would you be willing to pay for it you probably wouldn't pay ten dollars because when you got the ten dollars in ten years from now you'd only be able to buy maybe a loaf of bread rather than a loaf of bread and some milk in today's dollars terms so you would actually discount that back that future $10, and you'd only pay, let's say, $6 today for it. It's that basic concept. So it's, it's not just about inflation. It's also. Uh, it's, it's,
0: so it's, everything also, in the future looks like it's worth more now. Everything in the future.
1: Everything in the future is worth full cost, full. We'll have less purchasing power. So that's one concept of it. And that's what Alistair was explaining. The other concept is if you've got $10 to invest, what could you invest it in? And let's say, go the example, you could put it into bonds and maybe, I don't know what the bond rate is, let's say it's 5%. You could get- I thought it was negative. Whatever it is. <laughs> um, just as an example, you could get 5% returned every year over the next 10 years. So that almost acts as an as a opportunity cost there for the minimum amount. Yeah, so you need at
0: least to find for- the same return. Or more. There's the equity risk premium, right?
2: That's that the equity risk premium is the difference between the risk free rate of return and bond. so well the yeah, the government government bond, which is and then and then the equity risk premium is, is the, the additional risk that you're that you want to put on top to take for taking on an investment in an equity in shares.
0: Yeah, I think I'm starting to get an intuitive grasp in that obviously ten dollars in my wallet in 2040 is going to be worth less than 10 bucks now. So if I'm anticipating getting 10 bucks from a business in 2040, I will pay less. And this is where I I again, lose my intuitive grasp because I guess this is the concept that we're when, when you're investing, you're buying a stream of income.
2: Mm -hmm. So, If you're going to receive $10 in 10 years' time, so you've got two options with that $10, you can spend it today and buy $10 worth of goods. So if you do that, then that means you want to pay the equivalent amount. So in 10 years' time, you might find that it's worth about $3 today would buy you the equivalent amount in 10 years' time. So otherwise, you can invest that money.
0: The job of an investor is to purchase cash flows, but you want to purchase it when after you've adjusted it, because you're buying it for you're anticipating the cash flow in the future. So because it, it will occur in the future, you need to adjust it for inflation. So you need to discount it. The adjustment mm-hmm. is called discounting. And so all, all the job of an investor is is to purchase that free cash flow in the future at a rate that's been adjusted so that you're not overpaying for it at thinking as though you were purchasing it now. And you want to buy it when expressed as a share price, it's cheaper than that cash flow in the future is actually worth. Is that the job of an investor? Um,
2: I I guess so. Maybe it's it's part of it. (laughs) Um,
0: Because basically what the stock market is, is a bunch of of free cash flow generating vehicles. Every business ultimately, whether it's selling tires or ice creams, um, after the cost of doing business and paying your employees, etc., you get cash flow, which is the owner earnings, right? Free cash flow. Mm-hmm. So you're, I don't know, I'm trying to keep up, but
2: I don't think I am. <laughs> so when you make an investment, you're buying future free cash flows, basically. So you're paying so much to receive so much into the future. And the further into the future it is, the less those dollars are worth today so you don't want to pay as much for them so if you don't discount it you're going to be overpaying for that business because you'll pay a lot more to receive $100 next year than you would pay to receive that $100 in 30 years time so you'd pay $90 to receive that $100 in a year but in 30 years time you might only pay $10 because that $100 in 30 years' time is going to be worth a lot less. Its purchasing power is going to be a lot less than it is today. Okay. And the
0: opportunity to make money, not to just pay what that $30 in the future will be worth now, but to pay less for it than it's worth now. Well, that's, that's,
2: that's the opportunity. Yeah. The idea is whatever you want to earn, that's what you should discount your cash flows by. Okay. And
0: there's the idea of the margin of safety. Well, the margin of safety is- a the,
2: mar- the margin of safety, safety is- is of mistakes. So after you've, after you've made your analysis, you can apply a margin of safety. So I have a minimum 20%. So if I calculated at $10, I'll take 20% off and my purchase price will be at $8. And that $2 difference is to account for me making mistakes Yep. in my analysis. So a recent example is I own shares in Vita Group. They, they operate about over 100 Telstra licensed shops and they have a rolling five-year contract. Just in February, it was announced that Telstra is going to take back all these, these licensed and uh, franchised shops back in-house and then have them owner-operated by Telstra. So that's in five years' time. of income for Vita Group is going to be non-existent. At the moment, they've got 3% of revenue generated from aesthetic skin and laser treatments, clinics, which is their new sort of area they're going to be growing into. But because I had a margin of safety and bought them at such a discount, the price I've paid is probably, even though this recent announcement, even though after the next five years of cash flow, it's pretty much is equal to the price which I've paid. And that's because I had a, luckily I had a, a margin of safety implemented, but
1: that one because obviously that company has gone through a fundamental change in its its future. Uh, what have you decided in that share, in that stock to are you holding on to them or are you decided, because the, the future is so fundamentally different, you've decided to sell?
2: I'm going through that process at the moment. It's a downfall on my behalf. I should have been probably better across the, the skin health and wellness, I think that's what they call it. Uh, segment of the business that was for more long-term future, reliable growth opportunity. But it's a, I think. Uh, so I'm still invested, and I think I probably will stay invested because the manager, Maxine Horn, this the founder. She's the founder and CEO of the company. So she created the phone zone businesses. I don't know if you've heard of them, which all got basically rebranded into, into Telstra shops. Yeah. So and she's got a a large stake in the business as well. So. I think that they would probably, and it's a very fragmented market, the skin health and wellness clinics. So there's plenty of room to increase their market share. So I think it's probably not going to be a, a terrible investment and the price I paid for it still taking into the news instead of at a discount, which I thought I had bought at it, is probably, I mean, cause I bought it two or three years ago, it's now sort of at a fair value.
0: I'm going to have another crack at this just to try and finish off the discount cash flow topic. So basically, if you're anticipating, for example, over the next 10 years, a business is going to return $30. You have, a year or? Because you're, you're looking at it um, over a period of 10 years, right?
2: Myself, personally? Yeah. Uh, I look at, it depends on the company. But, okay. And, and, so
0: for example, yeah. if it was the next decade. Yep. Are you basically looking at the owner earnings, so the free cash flow? and you're summing those anticipated owner earnings over the next decade. Mm -hmm. You're getting the sum of that. And because of inflation, we have to adjust that final cumulative owner earnings, anticipated owner earnings over the next decade. We have to adjust that for the effect of inflation.
2: And your required return. Sure. If you you only adjust it for inflation, that's all you're going to receive from your
0: investment. Yeah. Okay. So just to keep things simple, if it's valid, for the sake of the example, say without adjusting it, the cumulative owner earnings over the next decade is going to be 30 bucks. But because you know that inflation will happen, you have to adjust that and say the result of the adjustment is that the cumulative owner earnings over the next decade today is worth 10 bucks am i correct so far in this being how the concept works
2: um
0: yeah so the price you pay yeah so so i'll keep going then so then because we make errors as active investors we just make mistakes and also because sometimes these businesses don't disclose enough to the stock market through their annual reports etc there's a potential for error so like good financial engineers we have to factor in to our approach, the potential for error. So we use what's called a margin of safety and your one, as far as I can recall from the ebook is 20%. Yep. Minimum of 20%. Right. If my maths is not too far off, that means it becomes safe to purchase it when it's $8. Yeah. Yep. 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 Okay. But then we can be confident that our money is not going to reduce in real terms Over the next decade, if we purchase it for that sum of future free cash flows for $8, we will come out.
2: Um, Well, I mean, there's a lot of, lot of variables that. Definitely. But but
0: in a perfect world, we'll come out even if we purchase it
2: at $8. Exactly. Yeah. Not even because if if it's, if it's it's a perfect world and you've purchased it at a 20% discount to the intrinsic value, you're going to come out with a return above your discounted rate. Ah, okay. All cheaper. right. But
0: we can't bank on that because what we have, the reason we have that margin of safety, I'm sorry, did I understand you correctly? So yeah. Yeah. So we, but we can't bank on, get on there, not being an error. We have to bank on there being an error. So we have to mm-hmm. bank on that. We must, I'm not getting, but we, maybe, so, maybe the margin
2: of safety can be seen like a, like a tip, you know? So you, you've yeah. done a good job. You've done a good job in your analysis and you've paid a 20% margin of safety, then you're gonna get that full 20% tip. But if your analysis hasn't been very good and hasn't turned out to play, your tip's gonna keep reducing and reducing to be smaller and smaller. Sure. Um,
0: but but, but regardless, so what I was building up to was that it the job of the investor is not to hunt, not, it, you haven't done your job if you buy it for $8. What you're looking for is to buy it for $6. Hope anticipating you can, yeah. that it will increase to a value of eight dollars
2: no well uh anticipating it would increase to a value of ten dollars but i mean for me if i if i get the opportunity to buy a good quality business um at a fair value or a discount to its intrinsic value i'm not going to sell it once it reaches intrinsic value i'll just keep holding on to right. it you're, you're hoping it will go above that but you, would above you it and fall it back fair and
0: so fa- fair value so, sorry to butt in uh, So is fair value $8? Because that includes the margin of safety.
2: Um, Well, for my my own myself, then, yeah, I'd say that's sort of like a a fair value to buy it at. Ben's Um, shaking his head.
1: Fair value of the company is the discounted cash flow that equals the return that you're going to put into it is the price that you're gonna pay.
2: The, the margin of safety is just a risk mitigation. Yeah, yes. yeah so, um, so the value of the business is, is the fair value, I guess, yeah, and that's correct.
1: So, so but what your job,
2: Alastair,
0: is that you're running around, you're discounting the cumulative 30 bucks, you're adjusting that to present value, you're doing that and you're finding that it's 10 bucks that you should, that it's worth, that, that mm-hmm. future free cash flow is worth those future earnings earnings are worth only 10 bucks. So you're doing that adjustment. Mm-hmm. Then, because you're you're humble and smart enough to recognize that you make mistakes, you are then adding a 20% buffer to that. So you're saying if if it's eight bucks, then I can feel safe committing capital to that because that's how much it's all else being equal, and the, the growth rate, that's how much it's. This money will be worth expressed as owner earnings over the next ten. But actually, you're looking for opportunities, aren't you? So you're looking for the six dollar or the the five dollar, the fifty cent dollars.
2: If I can get it at that, then that's just an added bonus. If I only have the choice between two investments, quality would come before price, provided it is below its intrinsic value plus a margin of safety. I would probably be more inclined to buy the better quality business at a higher price than the lesser quality and lower price because over time I believe or as I've read that that higher quality business is more likely to keep performing well and then just that compound growth rate self-fulfilling prophecy really like whereas if you'd buy the lesser quality business it might be cheap now and it might rally up but then for whatever reason it falls back down again or it's, your first priority should be quality and then the second priority is price but provided that it's below intrinsic value.
0: And intrinsic value is simply adjusting the $30 down to $10. That's your intrinsic value.
2: Yep, well the intrinsic value is is the actual value of the business, yeah. So you got market price and then the intrinsic value. And most of the time, a lot of the time, it's pretty close to the market price and intrinsic value are pretty close. I've actually just started a, an additional chart, um, which you can see on my website. As well which tracks my portfolio the market value versus my intrinsic value as well so it'd be interesting to see how that plans out over the following years you'd expect that the market value will go up and down quite a bit in comparison to the intrinsic value of the portfolio so and just in the last few months that market value has gone up above the intrinsic value of the portfolio so that sort of indicates to me that overall my investments are trading above their intrinsic value. If that makes sense, when, if, if that market price pull, um, falls below the intrinsic value, then I sort of know that overall my portfolio, so the risk of is, is trading um, below the intrinsic value. So it probably means that there's opportunity to increase my holdings.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> These things just don't
0: come intuitive to, intuitively to me. And I, I'm determined to be honest about it until I get it. Yeah. <laughs>
1: It's always hard to explain these things as well if it's not in front of you you know, or something like that. Uh, just to explain in words, concepts like discounting. Well, the,
0: the reason I'm trying to be so honest about it is I think a lot of people just don't maybe, get it either.
1: Maybe a better term should be developed and I think people would understand it better rather than discounting because the layman thinks of discounting as you're getting some sort of value, you reduce the price of something and it... It is associated with that, but a better term would be something like the value to the investor of future cash flows. True true value, maybe not not objectively, subject um, value of future cash flows. Roger
2: Montgomery calls it the investor's required return, which makes it more self-explanatory. It's your required return as an investor. It's that discount rate. So that's what you discount the future cash flows by. Because if you don't have a discount rate and you you buy a business for $10 and the next year it pays you it's in in business for one year and it pays you a $10 cash flow you haven't earned anything on that so if you discount that cash flow by 10% and you buy the business for $9 and the next year you receive that $10 you've made you've made 10% but if you discount that that cash flow by 20% and you pay $8 and then you receive the $10 then there you go you've received 20% and you just keep doing that for every future year so in 2 years time if you discount that same $10 cash flow instead of the business only being in business for one year it's going to be in business for two years so you've discounted the first year's cash flow $10 by 10% so that's $9 and then the second year's cash flow you're going to receive it another 10% so you discount that by 10% over two years and that's $8.30 or something like that i don't know so then there's $17.30 you pay for that those two $10 cash flows and then that's that equates to 10% return on your money over two years
1: rather than discounting future cash flows is just project out your future cash flows, don't discount them, but you actually put your investment and escalate your investment by your required return. So if it's 10% or 15%, then you just grow that and then you compare the business's future year Mm -hmm. uh, cash flows net cash flows to the growth in the investment that you make and see if they're
2: yeah yeah that would work yep so you you grow your ten dollar investment by ten percent a year and you compare that to the the cash flows which are going to grow the ten dollar cash flow which is also going to grow at whatever it is and if they come out the same then that's yeah so the the
0: growth in the owner earnings or the free cash flow of the business should match the growth rate that you want to achieve your required return as an investor
1: at least yeah ideally better but so if you put in 100 bucks and you say you want 10 then in year one you get 110 from your desired investment and then what you compare that 110 to the year one net cash flow of that business and see whether if the net cash flow from the business is a 110 or 111 or 112 dollars then
0: you buy it theory that, that makes things so much easier it seems more intuitive than discount cash flow i'm not dissing this very credible approach but i'm just being honest about the difficulty i have grasping it intuitively
1: in year two you would say you're 110 dollars should be worth $121 because you've done 10% on top of that again. So compound. So you compare the $121 to the year two net cash flow of the business. And that way you, you avoid the whole discounting confusion. but that's all you're doing. Like when you yep. but in a reverse
0: Yep, that makes makes sense. Yeah I, I can I think it's very easy to calculate and understand the compound annual growth rate of owner earnings that's easy to calculate
1: we've got fun questions now fun (laughs) questions. can can you explain discounting in spanish or something no so this one's a behavioral question and it's we all learn how to wash our hands in the coronavirus world hopefully most of us learn to do it in primary school as well so we've learned about hygiene. What about mental hygiene? What should we start doing from a mental hygiene equivalent of washing our hands?
2: I think that a big problem is the access to liquid investments, really. When you buy your home, because it's an illiquid market, you don't panic whenever there's an economic crisis around you because you're not intending on selling that house because you live in it. It's your, your house. So if you take that same philosophy and into your investment philosophy, you're buying these businesses as a business. It's you owning this business. And if you think to yourself that I've got to hold this for so many years, you can remove a lot of those temptations to sell. But I think that's a big thing is is just having that long-term mindset would remove a lot of the issues around the stock market. Uh,
1: Peter good. Thornhill. Oh, go, man. I said like three generations of wealth holding.
2: Exactly. That's I mean, if you look at my portfolio, I've got furniture, which is going to be around for a long time, and jewellery. Humans have had jewellery from... The Stone Age it's been it's always been a part of our culture and lives travel we've been expanding and circumnavigating this globe for you know since we could walk and then also the next biggest holdings are a funeral <laughs> funeral home and I'm assuming we're going to keep dying for a little while yet so having that long-term mindset and just letting you don't have to worry about and, and investing in industries which have been around for a hundred years or a thousand years and going to continue to be around it it helps gives you the confidence to to say investing in funeral homes. Yep, one of my investments is Invocare, which owns funeral
1: homes. What did the stock price do over the coronavirus
2: period? So originally it spiked up because everyone thought, oh that's good, everyone's going to die from the coronavirus. (laughs) And then they realized, oh hang on, we've all been put into lockdown and we're not allowed to have funerals anymore. So all these funeral homes aren't going to be able to receive a full service funeral so that the cash flows are gonna be reduced. And then also there's been a, in Australia, about a 3% decline in the death rate. And then New Zealand's about 5%. Because of isolation and things like that, we've seen a reduction in the death rate.
1: What's caused the reduction in the death rate, sorry? is that
2: Because of increased hygiene, usually the flu kills a lot of people and things like that. But now we're all social distancing and everything because of the coronavirus has seen a big reduction in those types of deaths, really. Jeez, okay,
1: wow, interesting, very interesting.
0: Okay, so human sacrifice is no longer common. It used to be a part of many cultures around the world, but was banned, for example, in Rome in 97 BC. What is something we routinely do now, which we looked upon in 2000 years as highness, speaking of discount cash flow analysis? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Just to add to that, with your investment in funeral homes, are you hoping to bring back human sacrifices? (laughs)
2: well i I plan to be frozen so i'm probably not not a good person to be buying a funeral home business but i guess in i think the way we treat and use animals without sounding like i'm preaching or anything but i think it's going to be something which we we might look back on and think perhaps could have done that better and yeah
0: (laughs) give give us some more detail on that alistair
2: ah well just the 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 animal industry as a whole i guess it is a, a lot depending on and your beliefs, I guess, the research you choose to look at, but there's a, a lot of on it from a climate perspective. It causes a lot of carbon emissions, so it's increased climate change, all those issues, and then animal ethical perspective. It's the farming practices could see a lot of improvement. Um, I think
0: the word "highness" is a good one to use for the farming industry, the dairy industry, how little chickens are are dealt with in their miserable lives in these
2: factories well yeah i mean you think think about it we've got pet dogs and cats and things so we've got an affection towards them and we look at places like vietnam and eat dogs and we think oh that's just outrageous how could they eat a dog but it's only because we have that affiliation towards dogs and appreciate their intelligence and their affection but i mean i recently just found a rabbit at christmas time which was in our neighborhood and we couldn't find its owner even just having it this few months having this rabbit you sort of appreciate like they're actually pretty intelligent and affectionate animals so now every time i sort of see a dead rabbit on the road i have a lot more appreciation for its life just having been taking care of a rabbit for the last few months and jumps on your lap and gives you little licks and stuff and yeah i I think there's probably a a lot of room for improvement in the way we abuse and use animals um it'll be interesting to see over
0: 2000 years yeah how our attitude involves to do with animals
2: and and from a health perspective as well think of all the money which is being spent on in the health industry and heart disease and diabetes and arthritis and all those things and a lot of cancers and stuff plenty of evidence to link the food we eat to our health i guess we might look back and say maybe we're a bit a bit stupid to have such a large proportion of our diets consistent from animal products
0: there are a lot more militant ways to make that point alistair that's a nice note to finish on so, Alice, Dara, still haven't gotten enough about your comments on discount cash flows. Where can I and others go for more material from you online about how to really get to the bottom of discount cash flow analysis?
2: Growthwithvalue.com.
0: Yeah. Great. And you've got a Slack group as well.
2: Yeah. So if you if you want, just send me a message and I can join you up to that. And uh, I'm just probably more because I, I don't like to send out emails and clog up people's inboxes. So I figured. I offered people a place to join on the Slack group, but just the nature of my investment style, it could be years before I have anything which is worth investing in. So on there, I share any updates to my website and any podcasts or even my buy and sell trade orders and things, but don't expect to to be uh, overly active. Great.
0: Okay, so it's GrowthWithValue.com, and basically everything is available from there. There is a newsletter that you can sign up for.
2: Yeah, you can sign up for. So if you want to download the ebooks and the spreadsheet at this stage i'm going to be sending a quarterly update around my portfolio and then anything of interest i also have book summaries as well i've just started doing you might find them helpful so you can you can just download them as well from the website okay so
0: if users basically browse your website and see all the outputs that you've made they can see basically what it takes which is the point of this episode to get to that higher geometric return of 25% as an active investor, as opposed to sitting back as a passive investor. There's a lot of extra effort mm-hmm. to put in. And if you look at Alistair's website, there's a clear expression there of the level of work it involves. I've got one more question. So you mentioned earlier on that there's a screener that you use based on Kenneth Marshall's Good Stocks Cheap mm-hmm. book. Do you have that screener on your website or, or where that's do you it, do
2: that's, It's in my. That's in my spreadsheet. So once I've inputted all the financial data, I think I shared it with you at one point. It just, it, it just, each each year of uh, historical data through each of Kenneth Marshall's criteria, it'll highlight between green and red on a varying basis whether it's a good or okay. But you bad. have to go and find that stock and put it in your sheet, right? Yeah, I'll go through it in one of my podcast episodes. Right. Okay, about screening process. But I mean, that's a very short, easy part of the whole overall process and then i yeah actually i also have a, a watch list on my website as well all the stocks which have passed through my screener and ethical Perfect. screen so, okay, you so what we'll that. do yep
0: yeah, so we'll put as show notes the links to the growth of value podcast and your website and also specifically the screening episode because that sounds useful as a way
2: to yeah rip out uh, 80 percent i also have from the i also have it i also have a discounted cash flow episode ah uh, thanks
1: on. thanks Nelson. <laughs>
0: Uh, I'll
2: go and listen to it now. <laughs> yeah, you can uh, help help you go to sleep perfect.